Welcome to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere. Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of the Center of Everywhere, a podcast from the Center for Rural Policy and Development. On this episode, Julie Tesh is joined by Reed Anfinson, owner and publisher of three rural newspapers in Minnesota, the Swift County Monitor News in Benson, the Stevens County Times in Morris, and the Grant County Herald in Elbow Lake. Also joining the conversation is Lisa Hills, the executive director of the Minnesota Newspaper Association, which is a voluntary trade association of weekly and daily newspapers in Minnesota. Their conversation touches on the importance of the community newspaper for a functioning democracy, how the concentration of businesses in larger economic centers has hurt the local newspaper business model, and the future of community newspapers. Welcome to the Center of Everywhere. My name is Julie Tesh, and I am the president and CEO of the Center for Rural Policy and Development. Really excited for our podcast this week. We have Reed Anfinson, who is a publisher of many newspapers in West Central Minnesota, and Lisa Hills, who um, is executive director of the Minnesota Newspaper Association. And I guess we're going to start this conversation, Lisa, if you could just tell our listeners what MNA is and what they do. Uh, Thank you, Julie. Uh, Minnesota Newspaper Association is the trade associations for all the newspapers in the state of Minnesota. Uh, We represent all the daily newspapers, Star Tribune, uh, Post Bulletin in Rochester, and all of the community newspapers. Uh, across the state. um, The majority of the members in Minnesota are small community newspapers, uh, community weekly newspapers with a circulation under 5,000. M&A provides uh, lobbying, uh, legislative support. We have an ad placement service. We place ads throughout the state. Our nonprofit training arm, the Minnesota News Media Institute, provides internships to newspapers, training programs, leadership programs, uh, and we offer a menu of member benefits uh, that uh, newspapers can take advantage of. Do most newspapers in Minnesota participate in the trade association? Nearly 100% do. Uh, We have... um, nearly 100% of membership of all newspapers in the state. There are a few community newspapers, uh, monthly newspapers that are not members, uh, but they can join. But most of the newspapers in the state are members of Minnesota Newspaper Association. Okay, so it's a good mix of urban and rural since today we're talking about more rural, small town newspapers. Um, It's a good mix of rural and urban? Correct, yes. That's good. That's really, really good to hear. And you, you're talking about community newspapers. So that's, that's great that there's such a high number of them. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing Reed, that's where you fit in. And so why don't you tell our listeners, um, you have such a, a broad history in the publishing and journalism industry, but why don't you give our listeners a, a quick review of, of your career as a journalist and um, what you're, what you're currently doing? I've uh, been in the newspaper business since uh, graduating from the University of Minnesota School of Journalism a long time ago and working for the Minnesota House for a little bit. And then uh, I came back to Benson to take over the newspaper uh, 
in uh, the early, late uh, 1980s and was going to stay for just a little while and ended up staying for a lifetime. Uh, but it's been a great lifetime working with community newspapers. And over the years, I've served as uh, president of the Minnesota Newspaper Association. I have served as its uh, co-chair and then chair of its legislative committee for many years. Uh, and I've served as president of the National Newspaper Association, representing at the time about 3,000 newspapers in America, which had me traveling around the country. I still serve on the National Foundation Board of Directors and uh, still have input on a national level. Uh, and working with the Center for Rural Policy and Development, I sought that seat on, on the board because if I wanted to work for my community newspaper, I had to work for my community. And I saw the center as an ideal place to, to have a broader voice for small town America, uh, other than just through my newspaper. And we appreciate you as a board member. I have learned so much about newspapers and the journalism industry and publishing. So thank you for being a valued board member. Um, and you know, Reed, I know we've talked quite a bit about just the issues and opportunities in small town newspaper business. Um, let's talk about the future of community newspapers. I know, Reed, that we've talked about this quite a bit. And obviously in our society, we're getting more technology driven. I can go on my phone and check out what's going on wherever I want. Tell me about your newspapers and your circulation and how you've seen that change in the last 10 years with the advent of people going online more for their news. Well, the first thing I would like to do is kind of set the base here of, of the reality of what faces small town America. 76% of the communities in America are under 5,000 population, about 14,770. In those communities, in those 76% of communities in America, in a digital only world, we don't exist. We earn zero to 5% of our income from digital. Uh, it just, there just isn't enough uh, revenues to sustain us through subscriptions or through digital ads. And then when you look at where we'd get paid from, for example, a Google, if Google had to give us a better payment on what they take from us, Pittsburgh-based Trib Total Media earns about $144,000 a year from Google. That's on 300 million page views. I would probably earn about $14 from Google and Facebook if they were to pay me. So there's no, there's no digital rev revenue stream that keeps community newspapers alive. And what I know from having covered city, county, school district, economic development, hospital board meetings, is that at 95% of the meetings I attend, I am the only citizen who's not a government official in the room. And what does that mean uh, if I'm gone? That means everything that happens at a governmental level disappears. We don't know why the county's gonna levy for $30 million to put up a new building. We don't know why the school district is cutting uh, courses in language and science and arts because they don't have enough funding to hire teachers for those positions. We don't know why our hospital is affiliating with a big regional uh, hospital. We don't know why one person applying for economic development aid gets $100,000 and why another person was denied aid. Uh, we don't know the answers to any of those questions without the community newspaper. A person can say they get the news on their phone or on their laptop, 
uh, or iPad, but it's not news of their community that they need to know. Uh, that news only comes from one place and that's the local newspaper in most communities. Agreed. And I know the other day we were talking about, you and I were talking about local advocacy instead of national advocacy. And just the whole thought of people are very, um, I don't know if they're involved, but are, are maybe more involved or commenting more on some of the national things, whether it's Ukraine or COVID or whatever it is, but the things that are happening at the local level, like you said, you're typically the only non-governmental person there. Um, how do you see that playing out? If, if the newspapers would not be in existence anymore, how, what would happen? When, when the newspaper doesn't exist, when people don't have local news, they turn to wherever they can get news, and that tends to be state or to a greater and greater degree national news. And national news is very divisive today. Uh, local news tends to unify people with common subjects, common topics, common people, people they know as friends who may be from a different political uh, sphere than they are. But they have those things in common, such as whether you're right or left, you want your children to get a good education and have that class in, in Spanish or French or German. You want them to have the arts classes. You want them to have that biology class. And so you work together to help finance your schools, your school and the education your students get, maybe by supporting an operating levy. But if you don't have that local newspaper, you don't know those subjects at all. And you don't work together. And instead you turn to national news, which is very divisive. So Lisa, I'm curious, is that this isn't just a rural issue, is it? No, it isn't a rural issue. It is a, an issue in all communities throughout the state. The newspaper in all communities plays an important role. They are giving accurate news. Uh, they're sharing both sides of the story. They're covering events that just would not be covered otherwise. There are investigative reports. Um, they're sharing information about deaths in the community, celebrations. Uh, they provide advertising for businesses. And so it, it's throughout the state, they, and well, throughout the country, but all communities uh, value their newspapers and need their newspapers. Absolutely. I know where, where I live, we receive several local newspapers, whether, and most of them are weeklies. Um, we do have the free press that's a daily. And, you know, I, I grew up reading newspapers and I still crave having that newspaper in hand. I know I can go online and read things, but um, having that newspaper in hand is, is so vital. And, you know, read in your business, when you're looking at making making money because it is it is a business, obviously. What does that look like? How much of your revenue comes from subscriptions? How much comes from um, advertising? The vast majority, 75 to 80% comes from advertising and 20%, uh, 25% comes from, um, from subscribers. Now we do, we, you know, newspapers today, all newspapers do have their digital side. We have a very limited version of our newspaper that's available free, uh, but free is not a business model. So we don't give away a lot. We have a, we have a PDF version of the newspaper people can subscribe to. So if they don't live immediately in the area or if they live in another state, 
they don't have to be completely frustrated with not getting the newspaper because the mail isn't delivering it on time. And so they can go to that digital PDF version of our newspapers. But again, those, those sources of income represent less than 5% of our income and they'll never exceed 10% of our total income. Uh, I've done the math that in Benson Morris and Elbow Lakes newspapers and uh, the income digitally would not support one person working at those newspapers. Or if they did, the person would be working 90 hours a week uh, for minimum pay and they would burn out and they wouldn't do it. The other big challenge we face uh, at this time, along with the digital thievery, I would say, from our newspapers, stealing our, our content to make it online and digital where other people profit off it, is we face a real challenge in the future, right now, in fact, to see the newspapers in the state, the rural newspapers turn over into a new set of hands, a new set of young people. Um, I had received a call from a person in Northern Minnesota who wanted to know what the name of a group was that was buying up some community newspapers in the state because he wanted to sell. He was at an age, now in his 80s, where he didn't feel he had the energy or the talents any longer to produce a newspaper, but he couldn't find anybody to come to his community to take over the newspaper. That leaves him with the choice of closing the doors and walking away or selling to a chain. And if you can't find a chain, increasingly what's happening in small towns across America is the doors are being closed and the publishers walking away, uh, leaving the community without a source of news at all. Uh, and so we have to find a way to fund newspapers to keep them alive. Uh, at the founding of the country, Madison, Jefferson, and our other founders knew that to have a legitimate representative democracy, you absolutely had to have an informed electorate. If you didn't have an informed electorate, as, as uh, Madison said, you'd have a, a tragedy or a farce. And so they agreed at that time that they would support community newspapers through almost free postal and public advertising. And that worked well to get the newspaper started. Then 1850s, 60s come along, advertising takes off and newspapers are, you know, just thrive on that advertising and the government support. Gradually, the government support disappears or goes away can, to a great degree. Then the internet comes around into 2000 and newspapers have lost their public support. They lose their commercial support. And now they're back to the fundamental base. And that is in a representative democracy, who pays for the news needed by voters to hold their elected officials accountable and to see what they're doing. And, and it comes back to the citizens. So government plays a role and citizen play, citizens play a role in supporting community journalism. And again, that goes back in rural America to that fundamental principle that without the community newspaper, without print, news disappears from rural America. There's no revenue there. And we're not, we're not media rich. I mean, we don't have radio stations and television stations and all kinds of uh, blogs, uh, internet sites like the Twin Cities have or other big cities have to support news. Um, and so 
I look at one example of that right now in that we just went through legislative redistricting. And in Western Minnesota, where we are, that really reshaped our district. Uh, we lost our state senator and our state representative to the east. We will have a new senator and a new representative in our area uh, come the elections in November and the start of the session in, in uh, January of 2023. How are the citizens of our district, legislative district, going to know who the candidates are or where they're supposed to be voting without the community newspaper doing those stories? Agreed. You know, I know I playing the devil's advocate here, I'm sure some people would say, oh, you can just go online and look at that. But we know that rural broadband isn't all it's cracked up to be. And a lot of people just don't have access. It's, it's an access issue, you know, underlying. And I think people forget about that. I think it's difficult a lot of times to find accurate information. You really need to be sure that you're going to sites that are providing you with quality information and that it's not a site that is partisan or um, run by a commercial interest that doesn't have the reader's best interest in mind. And that, that's, you know, inaccurate news is a huge problem when you start to uh, venture out to gather information online. Absolutely, absolutely. You need that trusted source of news, somebody who will give you both sides of the, uh, of the story accurately and fairly. Uh, I don't believe that uh, in the coverage we do in our newspapers that uh, any of the candidates we cover would say we cover them unfairly. Uh, there, has been, uh, there was a front page story with uh, Tori Westrom and Paul Anderson, the two Republicans who will be running in our district uh, front page story on them that just told the story about who they are and and why they're running and uh, and we will do the same for the Democratic candidates. Uh, that's just news. That's what we do. But if we're not there, you will not find those sites. You'll have the partisan sites, but you won't have the one that's balanced, the one that tells the story. Uh, and at times. Uh, maybe not as flattering as, as the candidates are about themselves. That's really interesting. I think back to read when you were in journalism school at the University of Minnesota, go Gophers, I'm an alum as well, but not at the journalism school, but talk about that, the basic tenets of journalism. I think, or I know people don't understand what those basic tenets of journalism are. Like being a journalist, it's, you know, you almost take a vow to be telling the truth. You know, how is that in journalism school? They, they pound that into your head. Uh, when you're in your reporting classes, they'll, some of them would throw a fact sheet at you. And you'd have to do a story in a, in a certain amount of time on, from that fact sheet. Well, some of the facts weren't facts. <laughs> they were contradictory or false. And you would have to ask the professor or consult a, a manual to, to look up you know, differences in spelling and people's names or addresses. And if one teacher had two ways to grade you, uh, you'd get a grade on your, what you wrote, uh, A, B, C, D, you know, F or whatever. However, the other grade on yours, you absolutely hated to see, and that was E, O, F, 
And if you saw an EOF on your paper, it was an automatic fail because that stood for error of fact. And, and then you'd have to redo the story. Uh, and they love to trip you up on that. Uh, uh, there's lots of other ethics that go with reporting as well that, that come over time. Uh, and there are a lot of, uh, the way you were able to do a, a good job of reporting is to have been on a beat or covered a subject for a long time and established relationships. Uh, those things take time. And uh, journalism school prepares you to enter the world, develop trust with people, be accurate, um, and be honest. Uh, I've took an ethics course in, in, at the school as well uh, in uh, the challenges that we face sometimes. It's, it's not always easy. We run into situations where do we print a subject or don't we? Do we, name, do we use a name or not? Uh, we run into those cases in, uh, in uh, covering crime at times when juveniles are involved or victims of sexual assault. We run into those stories. Uh, <laughs> this was an appalling case. I was, went to cover a story of a, of a meth amphetamine bust. And so I took some pictures of law enforcement there but I later saw a, somebody had taken a video with their phone of the people coming out of the building with a commentary of what, how terrible these people were. Uh, well, the people they had in the film were just other residents of the building. None of them were involved with the meth. Uh, that would have gotten me sued out of, out of, uh, out of Minnesota, out of, out of a living, but they're on the internet, it just flies by. We hear that from our newspaper members. <laughs> And so, so Lisa, what do your members do? They just report the facts as they find them. And frequently they're criticized because social media is so quick to have posts about an incident in a town. I just recently was talking to one publisher and there had been a murder in their community. And social media, of course, was going wild with speculation and People were calling the newspaper asking why they weren't providing information. And it was because there wasn't any verified facts that they could provide. And it, it, people are so used to instant news now and newspaper journalists, reporters all work with verified facts. It's not uh, just flying out with, we heard. <laughs> Yeah, it's not, it's not opinion. It's not a blog post. No. Reed, I want to go back to the economics of being in the newspaper business. When it's so, whether it's a small town or, or a large town, but it, in Benson specifically, I know we had talked about the drugstore um, leaving and how they were such a wonderful advertiser for you. What's the ripple effect of of a business leaving Main Street, I think people just think like, oh, it's not there. I can't, I, I won't be able to get my prescriptions there, but it is so much more deep into the community. That was a case. And, and this is happening. The internet has been a huge disruptor of revenue for newspapers, but there are some other fundamental things happening in rural Minnesota that are having an impact on our, our revenue streams. And one of those things is regionalization and nationalization of our local businesses. So we take that local pharmacy that was a home-owned pharmacy, very loyal customer of ours, very loyal supporter of the community. And they get bought 
by a corporation, Thrifty White, that is a national corporation. They merge with another pharmacy in town that they bought at the same time, merge them both into one, and they have zero to give to the newspaper or the community. They're taking millions out of this community, not giving anything back at this point. Uh, whereas we used to have a fantastic supporter, support from both businesses really, but that's also affecting our implement dealers. It's a, we don't have a car dealer anymore because they're gone. They've been regionalized to a great degree. Uh, except in Morris, we have a, fan, you know, the, a couple of fantastic supporters there. I'm talking Benson right now. Um, so what you see is this regionalization of businesses that don't have a tie to the community, uh, which means they don't have a tie to the newspaper. Um, doesn't just hurt us, it hurts the community as a whole. The other problem we really see is, is Amazon. Uh, one UPS driver told me that 60% of his deliveries are Amazon in our area. People are ordering toilet paper from Amazon so they don't have to leave their house, they just have it delivered to their house. Uh, and that is robbing our main streets of, of income. And when our businesses are robbed of income, they're robbed of revenue they could advertise with. Uh, and then the other problem we face in, in rural Minnesota, not everywhere in rural Minnesota, but we face this in that Swift County's population is now below where it was in 1900. Uh, we lost a third of our rural population. Uh, that has a dramatic impact on, uh, on our main street and the store's health of those that are remaining. Uh, so those are all the internet regionalization population loss, Amazon, uh, they all have an impact on the health of community newspapers. You know, it, it comes down to where you spend your dollar matters. You know, I think that's that it's not, you're not just supporting the pharmacy, you're supporting these other entities as well. And I think in a rural area, it's magnified even more. You know, the Star Tribune that that scale is going to look different than your newspaper. Absolutely. And, and, and the one point, you know, despite all these things that are the reality of the world in which we live today, uh, businesses are not obligated to support the newspaper. Uh, they go to where they believe they can reach their, they go to where they believe they can reach their customers. So while they reach their customers, who, who is left to reach citizens? with the news that is the commodity of, of democracy. And that is the news we provide on what uh, their local officials are doing, what their legislative representatives are doing, what their members of Congress are doing, uh, who's left to report on that for them. Um, we are moving towards what I would call a caretaker society. Uh, we leave the uh, participation in government up to those who are willing to be involved in the vast majority of the public sits on the sidelines. And I see that is only getting worse. And as they say, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. If nobody's watching, somebody's been serving in office for a long time, doesn't feel appreciated, they feel entitled to take a little extra pay or a few extra benefits uh, when nobody's watching. We've seen that happen across the country. Absolutely. You know, you think of going to city council meetings isn't the isn't the exactly most 
exciting thing you can go to or, or going to a bond referendum meeting, but it's those things that need, like you said, need to be reported on. And, and it's, you know, I know when I read our local newspaper, I'm not necessarily looking to see what the school board minutes were, but it's like, oh, they're there, I'll read them. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't pay attention. But it's one of those things that, oh, perfect, I'll read it, it's there. Oh, here's who's running for these offices or whatnot. Um, I know I've had some people say, well, why can't we just have like flyers that get distributed, you know, get put up at the post office or get distributed? And I'm like, well, isn't that basically a newspaper anyway? Just <laughs> a, a well-published version of it. And they, they're like, oh, right. And who's going who's gonna to write that up and who's going to cover it on a, on a consistent basis? Uh, newspa newspapers have newspapers and print have power in their communities for five principal reasons. And those principal reasons are the reach of the newspaper. The newspaper is distributed throughout the community, but you don't have to subscribe. It sits on the counter in the store or in the bakery uh, at the bar. It sits around town and you see the headlines uh, of what's happening in your community without even subscribing. But you also get it at home and the Elected officials in your community know you get it at home and, and they know that people are going to be reading about what you're doing in, in those meetings. The other reason we have strength is financially. We have the financial, if we're financially healthy, we have the ability to challenge government when it with, would withhold information from us and from the public. We can take them to court. We can file a freedom of information uh, requests. We can go after the information citizens have a right to. The other thing that, that gets to the point we started a little earlier is we're always on duty. We show up day after day, month after month, year after year. Uh, if I've got an important uh, city council meeting to be at tonight and I have a, a, a son or a daughter or a grandchild involved in a big game at the high school, I'm gonna be at the meeting. I sacrifice that and journalists around the country do. They sacrifice those, night, those nights with family to bring you the news. If I'm just a person who's covering the news because I think maybe somebody should give, give it here and there, I'm not going to be at that meeting. I'm going to miss something very important. Uh, the other thing that we do is we have the knowledge of the laws, the Open Meeting Law and the Data Practices Act that give the citizens the right to information. A lot of people don't know that. I've had a person peek into a meeting through the door and say, can I come in? And if I wasn't there and they were discussing something sensitive, What's the odds that they might say, well, just wait a couple of minutes and, and then you can come in. That happens, that will happen. And the final thing is trust. Uh, people, survey after survey serves, com shows community newspapers are trusted by their readers, uh, more so than any other media in the nation. Uh, we have, uh, I walk around the corner in the uh, grocery store and there's somebody I just wrote about yesterday. Uh, it may not have been flattering. It may have been controversial, but, the, but I know when I write that, I'm going to run into that person somewhere and we'll talk about it. So we really do our best to be fair and accurate because we know that develops the trust that the person may not like what I wrote, but they'll say you're, you're, you, were, you were truthful. Right. And that's what's most important. Reach, financial strength, we're always on duty, knowledge of the laws and the trust. Those are the five things that we have as newspapers in print. Without print, we lose all those things. 
And the newspaper is really the voice of the community and it documents the history of the community. Uh, it shares the news of citizens or community members' death, uh, it's school celebrations, school events, graduations, festivals, uh, news about the community that pulls everyone together. And so it's the, the hub that keeps the community all rallied around each other. And it, it's so vital to a community to have a newspaper in it just for general news and information. That's Lisa, that's, you know, that's such an important point. Um, what the newspaper does is creates common ground for us to build bridges, you know, instead of chasms between us. And so if I write a story about a person uh, drilling a well up by Swift Falls, which is north of Benson, and at 200 feet, that person hits wood, and they call me up and say, Reed, we know you don't know the answer to this, but your brother is the state archaeologist. Maybe you can give him a call and ask him about why would we hit wood at 200 feet? And so I give my brother a call. He puts me in, in touch with the, the geological service and, uh, and they, Carrie Jennings calls me and says, well, that wood is from a forest that was run over by a glacier. And, uh, and but how old is it? My brother Scott said 10,000 years. And she said, no, maybe four or 500,000 years old. And how is that possible? It's because it's under high pressure in an anaerobic state. Now I write that story. Everybody in the community reads this story. And then they tell people from other communities, hey, did you see that story in our paper? Did you, did you read about the news in our paper? And it creates this sense of we're from Benson, Minnesota and, or this area and look what happened in our community. And we have something in common. Uh, and those, those bridges you build with those common stories you tell about your community allows you to work together to get things done. On the internet, everybody goes into a silo of their friends, their political persuasions, uh, and they don't reach out to the other corners of their community. We're, we're fragmented. We become very fragmented communities and much more divisive. Absolutely. You know, I think of along those lines, not the digging and hitting wood and everything, which is fascinating. I need to go and read that story. That's been a while but since I think of, that. yeah, I'm like, that seems really cool. I, I think of, you know, Lisa, like you were saying, like the social aspects. I mean, it's not, most places aren't any longer like, oh, so-and-so had lunch at so-and-so's place. But, you know, I was just reviewing a scrapbook from my great grandmother and cutting out newspaper clippings was so important to her. She was able to, you know, cut out clippings. I couldn't believe all the clippings she had of myself and my family, you know, in this scrapbook, you know, it's a point of pride, you know, were you in the newspaper? You know, we were big in 4-H and so we were in the newspaper for 4-H or my sister for sports or put the A on a roll, which I never made, but <laughs> you know, with those things, those points of pride are, are so important and uh, yeah, it's, like you said, Reed, it's like it's getting fragmented. You're not, we're not getting that more. We're not getting that as much anymore. And, you know, Lisa's heard me talk about this as this, this concept of mine. And that is out of sight, out of mind. There's a reason Eddie Bauer sends me a catalog regularly. Because it knows if they don't, six months from now, LL Bean's going to get a lot of their business. 
if they only rely on emails to me because I get 200 emails a day or more. I bury stuff that I, so I'll look at that later. Well, the press of the day and all the other emails I'm getting buries that email. And the next day or the day after that, I just wipe out all kinds of emails that have piled up. But that magazine sits on the counter, annoying me to a certain degree that says, come on, look at me. Uh, I'm here waiting for you. Uh, have a free minute. And I do see something maybe I want to buy and, and, and then I go to their website. But it's that print, that constant reminder that it's there, that uh, it, you know catches people's interest. Uh, but if, if it's not there, it's out of sight, out of mind. And that also applies to our democracy and our government. If we don't put the stories of our local governments in front of our citizens, government's out of sight, out of mind. And if government's out of sight, out of mind, eventually it's in your pocket one way or the other. And so we have that print product it has a real value uh, even today. Uh, one of the references I've used, one of the columns I wrote, uh, we have been called dinosaurs and buggy whips and other things uh, that are old and, and gone. But I like to think of newspapers as windmills. We're an ancient technology, an old technology that's been reimagined that still has a, a, a great purpose. Uh, we've, uh, we've got our digital websites, we've got our PDF versions, but it's the strength of the basic, basic structure. The pedestal and the, and the fans of the blade are the newspaper that keeps that energy of democracy running. Uh, and if we take away the print product, uh, there'll be a substantial erosion of citizen knowledge needed in a representative democracy. I really like, I really like that analogy. That's, think about that for a while. I really like that. I want to, I want to round out our discussion today talking about the future. What about emerging journalists? Where do we find them? How do we get people interested in being journalists specifically for print media and, you know, specifically read in for rural journalists? What are there things that MA is doing? You know, what what's going on out there? Uh, MA is providing internships. Um, and we're working closely with many of the schools around the state, uh, especially schools that have journalism programs and asking the students to join in conversations with real reporters and people who are working at newspapers and to have a conversation about what that's really like. Uh, we've had great feedback from the program so far. Um, because what uh, students are learning in the classroom is classroom learning. And when you're talking to a person who's doing actual reporting feet on the street, uh, it's a whole different scenario. But we're working hard to try to encourage students to pursue careers in newspapers, uh, journalism. And our internship program is available for high school students or college students. The newspapers receive funding from MI to hire the intern and um, then they report back. And so we're, we're trying to do our best to connect uh, future journalists with the newspapers and encouraging them to pursue careers in journalism. 
the the real challenge here is to bring those those the next generation of journalists to rural Minnesota. We have to do two things. First of all, we have to secure the 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 newspaper financially. And how do we do that? How do we how do we get that additional revenue stream to newspapers that make them financially secure? Because it's only by being financially secure that we're going to have the ability to bring somebody on, mentor them and sell our newspaper to that person or to several people who want to be local owners. If the newspaper's future is not supported, uh, if young journalists see that it's going to be or think it's going to be gone or won't have the money to pay them any kind of a living, they're not going to come here. They're not going to work here. Uh, so the first thing we need to do is secure the financial security, the financial security of the newspaper. The second thing we need to do, we have to have enough revenue to pay these young journalists a living wage. We've got to give them a competitive wage uh, to being a school teacher uh, in their community. When you look at the weight that the one journalist in a community often uh, supports, what's it worth financially? In Benson, I cover five city council members, seven school board members, five county board members, a dozen economic development people. I cover a, a, a city manager, a police chief, a sheriff, a county administrator, a superintendent, or economic development people. I cover dozens of public officials who make a lot of money. Uh, what's the value of that journalist who covers those people? who reports on what they do, who, how they're going to tax you, what laws they're gonna make of, uh, for the zoning of your, your residential area. What's the value of that journalist who provides that in a community? Generally all by the, the person's the only one who does it in many small towns, one journalist. What's that worth? Uh, sometimes I look at uh, uh, with, with a certain amount of I don't know, jealousy at the, uh, the farm organizations. They do an absolutely fantastic job with their substantial revenues of, of going to the legislature and to Congress and saying, we need support for these rural programs. For example, they're asking the Minnesota legislature right now for $2 million for basically for emerging farmer education. Well, we could certainly use $2 million in funds from the Minnesota legislature for a rural journalism program. Uh, I, always, I would think that perhaps if we could aim or gear the help for rural community journalism through USDA rural finance, uh, rather than through other versions of, of, uh, of Congress or the legislature, uh, I was sitting at an event sponsored by the uh, Atlantic Magazine. Lisa was there as well. And after the public events, we went upstairs with uh, the Atlantic staff and a group of us who were invited guests there. And I'm sitting across from Mike Klingensmith, the publisher of the Star Tribune. And they referred to Mike and I both as local newspaper people. Well, you know, that's a little bit like comparing a fly to an ostrich. Uh, there's a huge difference in scale. Uh, and Mike can make his revenue through many, many different sources uh, that he has available in a large metro area. I've got one source of revenue and that's print. Uh, and so the solutions for those 76% of American communities that are under 5,000, 
aren't based in the current bills that are before Congress. They're based in something new that's more geared to small town America and what we need uh, in our communities. Uh, the Local Journalism Sustainability Act, uh, I believe that one in the Build Back Better bill did have some support for journalism, uh, for journalist salaries, uh, but we need more than that by itself. Uh, Free postal. We're going to have to make sure that this. Oh, sorry. We're going to have to make sure that the USDA gets a hold of this podcast. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just see there's all kinds of rural programs for for the farming community that that look to support the farm community, and my argument on that is: is one community newspaper worth one farmer? Uh, hmm. And when you look at the aid that, that the farm community gets, and they are absolutely needed by us and, and supported by us, but is the community newspaper valid? I mean, for as, as important as one farmer. So that's a really good question. That's something to ponder. Yeah. So Lisa, so I final question here. We, you know, we were looking for rural journalists. What does the pipeline of journalists look like overall or is there a, a lack of print media journalists out there or is there a good is there a good pipeline at the colleges what does the future look like overall I would say currently there's a lack of journalists going um, to newspapers and just in general uh, our job board MA has a job board and we have more positions open now than I think I've ever seen <laughs> during my time at m and And um, the, the pipeline is, has definitely slowed and especially trying to get students to take positions in very small communities, uh, it, it's harder. And sometimes when a student goes to a small community newspaper, their experience is far better than if they go to a larger newspaper simply because they get exposed to a little bit of everything in a community newspaper, because at a community newspaper, a person does every role possible. They sell advertising, they take sports photos, they're covering the city meeting, uh, festivals, and uh, so there's a wealth of experience. And, uh, I, I, I desperately need a new editor at the Elbow Lake newspaper. Uh, I could also use my publisher there, the person who's been writing the newspaper for me, is retiring, not in the not too distant future, and I need to replace her. So I could use two people right now at the Elbow Lake paper, but I can't find anybody. And I've been I was just gonna for... ask, do you have anyone in the pipeline? No, I don't. Uh, I interviewed a person uh, recently, but that person had uh, no experience, can write, but has a full-time job and can't take time off from that job to go to school to learn graphic art and design, which is essential for helping. Is that a small town paper? You have to help lay the paper out uh, and doesn't have the time to be mentored on writing really because he's working full-time at another job. Uh, and so we need those programs in place that support uh, us getting new people working in, in, at community newspapers. First, we have to have financial support so the newspapers can continue to exist. Absolutely. 
I think I'll leave our listeners with two thoughts here. Um, one, please subscribe to your local newspaper. Um, I think that's that's a way that we have to encourage people to continue to subscribe and, and do that. But then number two, thinking about a career in journalism. I know students nowadays are bombarded with so many different careers, but you know what a great career to be a, a, a trained journalist, to be a true journalist, speaking the truth, reporting that news to the world. You know, so I think I think you know if our listeners can think about that. Um, I think that's that's a good thing. So thank you both so very much for this discussion. We can, I know we could talk all day and read. We've talked about this a lot. Um, hopefully we can do a research paper on this because you know part of what the Center for Rural Policy does is brings topics like this to the forefront so that our decision makers can have that accurate information and say, oh, here is a, here's an issue. Let's look at how to fix it or how to make it better. So hopefully we can do something like that with, with rural newspapers as well. I would, I think one of the most pressing problems for rural Minnesota and rural America is the potential threat. And it's a very real potential threat that they're gonna lose the news they need to keep their communities alive in a sense. Uh, and I almost look at it, we're reaching the point of, 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 of an analogy to biology called colony collapse. The colony reaches a certain point where the pressures are so much that all of a sudden they're just gone. Uh, and you may see a massive die off. Uh, and that's what we need to do the study for to prevent. Absolutely, absolutely. Lisa, do you have any parting words? No, read your community newspaper, support your community newspaper. Um, they're the reason, they're the hub for the community. Absolutely. Well, thank you both for being on this podcast. We greatly appreciate it. And for our listeners, make sure to check out our other episodes. We're on season two of the Center of Everywhere. And we have, I'm biased, but I think we have some really great podcasts and some really great topics that typically aren't talked about in rural Minnesota. So make sure to check that out on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much and have a great day. You've been listening to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere. Everywhere.